It is good to be with you again today. I am grateful for the time away, a good family time, and I'm grateful for our excellent staff who have carried out wonderful ministry in my absence, as they always do. I want to continue a sermon series today called Give Me Jesus, in which we are looking at various passages in the Gospels that teach us about Jesus Christ. And I've been thinking lately about what it means to be a Baptist Christian in particular. Of course, here at church we talk far more about being Christian than we do about being Baptist in particular, but sometimes it's good to reflect on the particular Baptist heritage. So that will come through in the message as well today as I draw your attention to Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. I'll read from the New Revised Standard Version, and the title of the sermon is Standing at the Intersection of Religious Freedom and evangelism. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be honest in order to trap him by what he said, so as to hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you are right in what you say and teach, and you show deference to no one, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose head and whose title does it bear? They said, The emperor's. He said to them, Then give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to trap him by what he said. And being amazed by his answer, they became silent. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Years ago, in another community, I stopped by a local elementary school one morning, and as I was on my way back out toward the exit, the principal stopped me. He was an acquaintance, so it was not unusual for him to greet me, but he made an unusual request. He said there was a fourth grader there at the school that morning who needed prayer, and he asked if I might pray with him before I left. I was quite surprised that he asked me to have prayer with the student at a public elementary school during the school day. I felt my eyes widen with discomfort, and I hesitated before giving him an answer. Some might wonder why I would hesitate. Isn't it normal for preachers to pray with people? Why would that make a preacher uncomfortable? The reason is that I believe in religious freedom for all people. Indeed, the principle of religious freedom is a crucial aspect of the Baptist heritage. Allow me to explain. The Baptist denomination emerged in Europe in the early 1600s. King James was the ruler of England at that time. And he required all citizens in the land to adhere to the Church of England, the official state religion. 
No matter what people might have personally believed about God or Scripture, they were required by law to believe what the Church of England taught. This was no toothless legislation either, for King James threatened any would-be dissenters saying, I shall make them conform themselves, or I will harry them out of the land, or else do worse. Nevertheless, some Christians dissented on the grounds that faith is a voluntary choice of individual conscience and should not be imposed on anybody. Among the dissenters were John Smith and Thomas Helwes, who are often credited with founding the Baptist denomination. Smith and Helwes repudiated government-run religion, arguing that the state has no right to judge the heretic or the atheist because God alone is the judge of conscience. In 1612, Helwes wrote, Men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it, neither may the king be judge between God and man. Let them be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. Helwes was imprisoned for promoting these ideas, and many early Baptists followed suit suffering intense persecution because of their outspoken conviction that religious freedom is the God-given right of all people. The Baptist belief in religious freedom is firmly grounded in Holy Scripture. According to Genesis 1 verse 27, all people are created in the image of God. This implies that each individual can relate to God, that each individual is responsible to God, and that each individual uh, can determine how and whether to worship God. The conviction that each soul is created free and capable of responding to God is called the doctrine of soul freedom. In light of this God-given soul freedom of human beings, it follows that earthly governments should not coerce religious belief. If God will not coerce faith, surely government shouldn't. James Dunn, the longtime head of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, has said, we come to Christ freely or not really. Coercion makes hypocrites, not believers. As a consequence of all this, a certain separation between church and state is both proper and necessary. Although we find evidence of theocracy in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ introduced a revolutionary distinction between what belongs to government and what belongs to God. He said, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God, the things that are God's. Baptists have long insisted that while taxes belong to Caesar, souls belong strictly to God, the God who created them free and the God who will judge them accordingly. The belief in the soul freedom of each person fuels the support of religious freedom for all persons. 
atheists, which is why I fully support the general right of people to be atheist, agnostic, humanist, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, and so on. Baptists have long maintained that to deny religious freedom to any is to endanger the religious freedom of all. This principle of religious freedom has shaped the United States largely due to Baptist influence. A man named Roger Williams founded the first Baptist church in America. It was located in Rhode Island because Williams got kicked out of Massachusetts for his belief that people should be free to worship God as they see fit. Williams actually founded the state of Rhode Island as a refuge of religious liberty where religious minorities could worship God according to their consciences. The rest of America gradually followed suit. A key player in this development was the noted 18th century Virginia Baptist pastor, John Leland. As Baptist historian Walter Sheridan reminds us, John Leland said, let every man speak freely without fear, maintain the principles that he believes, worship according to his own faith, either one God, three gods, no God, or 20 gods, and let the government protect him in so doing. Leland was a friend of the Virginia lawmaker James Madison, and he exerted considerable influence as Madison drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In this way, Baptist conviction shaped our nation's foundational documents. It's a historical fact that the doctrine of religious liberty in America was largely a Baptist accomplishment. In 1920, George Truitt, a longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, told the story of a prominent dinner party that was held in London. At the dinner party, the British statesman John Bright said to the American statesman, Dr. J.L.M. Curry, what distinct contribution has your America made to the science of government? Dr. Curry replied, the doctrine of religious liberty. Mr. Bright thought for a moment and then said, it was a tremendous contribution. This is why when I see the stars and stripes flying or when I see fireworks decorating the sky on the 4th of July, I thank God for all who have played a role in establishing and preserving religious freedom, which some call the first freedom of our many cherished liberties. I believe in religious freedom not only because I'm American, but especially because I'm Baptist. I believe with Baptists across the centuries that every person has the right and responsibility to deal with God without the imposition of creed, the interference of clergy, or the intervention of civil government. In light of all this, I hesitated when the principal asked me to pray with the fourth grader on public school grounds during the school day. I was concerned that to do so might compromise his religious freedom as a student at a government-run school. I didn't know if the principal was initiating this prayer meeting 
or coercing the student to participate in Christian prayer or using prayer as a form of discipline or what the situation was. And I didn't want to participate in pressuring the student theologically because it would violate my own theological principles. But in my moment of hesitation, the principal said to me, I've already asked the boy's parents about this, and they said it would be fine. He's been saying he needs Jesus, and he wants somebody to pray with him. After hearing this, I saw the situation in a whole new light. It would not seem to violate the student's religious freedom if he was requesting prayer and his parents were agreeable to a Christian adult praying with him at school. This suddenly appeared to me as a genuine ministry opportunity that could help the student, so I gladly agreed to have prayer with him. As the three of us entered the principal's office, the student was in tears, saying over and over again, I need Jesus to help me. The principal introduced me to the young man, told him I was a Baptist minister and that I was there to pray with him. I said to him, if you want to pray with me, you can. I'm going to say a prayer now. I said a brief prayer, trying to use simple words that he could understand. I basically prayed for God to help the student and give him peace. After that, there was further conversation, and the student kept saying over and over again, I need Jesus to help me. He looked distressed. The principal gathered that the student was worried about his own salvation. So he asked if I could stay a few more minutes while he called the young man's parents. I couldn't help but overhear their phone conversation, at least the principal's end of it, because it took five place of five feet away from me in the same room. He told them what was going on with the student. I could tell that he had known them for some time. He told them who I was and what church I pastored. And he asked the parents if it would be okay to have me talk with the young man about salvation. I thought, wow, first a prayer and now evangelism? Here I should mention that evangelism is also a crucial aspect of the Baptist heritage. Baptists have not only been promoters of religious freedom, but also promoters of the gospel. We have taken quite seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations. In the same breath that we say, don't let the government or anybody else force you into believing anything, we also say, by the way, Jesus is Lord. And he died on the cross and rose from the dead to save you from sin and death. And if you put your faith in him, you'll find abundant life on earth and everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. Some of the most fervent evangelists in all history have been Baptists, including William Carey, Lot Carey, Ann Judson, Lottie Moon, Billy Graham, and others. At our best, Baptists have followed Jesus' example. Jesus, who practiced invitational evangelism without being coercive. In Mark 8, Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? They could decide for themselves. It was invitation, not coercion. 
In Mark 10, Jesus invited the rich young ruler to follow him. But when the man decided not to, Jesus allowed him to walk away. It was invitation, not coercion. Jesus said to the fishermen, Peter and Andrew in Matthew chapter 4, follow me. They dropped their nets. He didn't yank them out of their hands. It was invitation, not coercion. Jesus attracted people by teaching truth and radiating grace. But he didn't take anybody by the arm and drag them along the road of discipleship. He called people, but he did not compel. He persuaded people, but he did not pressure. He drew people toward himself, but not so strongly that they couldn't turn away. And he surely did not try to set up a government-sponsored Christian faith. Instead, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. In short, Jesus, as I see him in the Gospels, preserved people's religious freedom while practicing loving, invitational evangelism. This is why I believe in evangelism. I'm not a particularly gifted evangelist. But I've preached the gospel many times outside of the regular worship setting. I've preached in a college communications class. I've preached to players and fans at a baseball tournament in the open air. I've shared the gospel with strangers on the seashore. I've spoken the gospel to young people at a YMCA day camp. I've shared the gospel with people between basketball games in a gym. I've told people about Christ on the street. I've talked with a neighbor about Christ in the driveway. I am all about sharing the gospel and also preserving people's religious freedom. Well, when the principal got off the phone with the student's parents, he told me that they told him that the Lord had been dealing with their son lately through services at their own church. Evidently, the young man had been thinking about becoming a Christian. Since the parents knew who I was and were fine with me talking to their son about salvation, and since the young man himself was asking over and over again for Jesus to help him, I did not think that gentle evangelism in this case would compromise his religious freedom. I rather thought it might help him. I asked if he wanted me to talk with him about Jesus, and he said yes. So I told him how much God loves him. And I told him how God sent Christ to teach us the truth and Show us God's love and how Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day and how Christ gives us forgiveness of our sins and peace with God and other people and how God is always with us and promises us eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. He seemed to want to put his faith in Christ. So I told him I was going to say a prayer, and if he wanted to pray along with me, silently or out loud, he could. And if he wanted to ask Jesus to save him, he could. I bowed my head, the student bowed his, and the principal bowed his. And then I voiced a prayer, and otherwise there was silence. Next it came to light that the young man wanted a Bible. 
I thought to myself, prayer? Evangelism? Why not a Bible too? The principal had permission from the parents for me to give the young man a Bible, so I drove over to the church. I searched our shelves for a Bible with a translation that he could hopefully understand. I drove back over to the school, walked back into the principal's office where he had been helping the student with some matters related to school, and I placed the Bible in the young man's hand, and I wish you could have seen his face. He was just beaming with the biggest smile. And he carried that Bible back to class with him that day. Later that week, a teacher at the school who was involved in our church told me she had heard about what happened. And she had heard that the young man got saved. He may have. I hope any decision of faith he made was the choice of his own free conscience and was not coerced by parents, principal, or preachers. In retrospect, I don't know if I made all the right decisions that day. Some might say I was not careful enough to preserve religious freedom or I failed to maintain a proper separation between church and state. Others might say I was too hesitant to extend the ministries of prayer, pastoral care, and evangelism when the opportunity was placed right in my lap. What I do know is that I want the gospel to be spoken freely in a free land and to be heard freely and responded to freely. I realize that some people oppose evangelism because they think it implies Christian domination. But not if we also promote and preserve the religious freedom of all people at the same time. I realize others question religious freedom because they think it could lead to a godless society but not if we also practice invitational evangelism at the same time. Religious freedom and evangelism are not contradictory, but complementary. Sometimes we lose sight of this because we get so focused on evangelism that we de-emphasize religious freedom, or we get so focused on religious freedom that we de-emphasize evangelism. But when they are held together with equal intensity, evangelism does not devolve into coercion or theocracy. And religious freedom does not produce a society with no gospel influence. And faith remains the voluntary choice of the individual conscience which God alone is qualified to judge. This, more than any other reason, is why I have chosen to be a Baptist Christian. I love that Baptists at our best have said, don't let the government or anybody else force you into believing anything. That has to be your decision. And by the way, God loves you so very much that Christ died for your sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day to give you freedom from the power of sin and the power of death, to give you peace with God and others, to give you forgiveness. Won't you come and follow Christ with us as we share God's love and make our way toward the kingdom of heaven? That morning at the school, through no initiative of my own, I found myself standing at the delicate and dynamic intersection of religious freedom and evangelism. And as I understand it, 
that is precisely where God has called all Baptists to take our stand. Amen.